What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. A good producer not only records music, but sometimes plays therapist, guidance counselor, and spiritual advisor. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. We talked to veteran producer Butch Vig about his career in the studio and working with some of rock's most notable artists. And later, we review the new Vig-produced album by the Foo Fighters. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. There's a new study out of the University of Pittsburgh that suggests there's a connection between the popular music that American kids are listening to and depression. It was published in the recent issue of Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, and we want to know what this means for music fans and the parents of those music fans. Let's talk to the man who conducted this study, Dr. Brian A. Primack, an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us how you came to study this and how it pertains to depression. What we found in this study is that when we look at a relatively large group of adolescents, if we look at the people who are listening to the most music, the top quartile in terms of music exposure, they are eight times as likely to be depressed compared with people who are in the bottom quartile. However, because of the particular design of this study, we're not able to say if it is music you know, that is causing that depression. In fact, we would probably um, hypothesize that it's the opposite. We would probably hypothesize that it is people who are depressed, who may be finding solace in music, who may be you know, not having the energy and the concentration level to be um, socializing and doing other creative things and might be sort of losing themselves in, in messages that, that make them feel good. So in a lot of ways, it, it, it's you know, not saying anything negative about music. In fact, maybe music provides a really you know, valuable service to these young people. We're really not sure. I thought this is a very sophisticated point here, that kids between 8 and 18 are exposed to 10 hours of media in one form or another a day, right? Yep. And then you were looking at those drawn to music or spending most of their time consuming music versus other forms of media, uh, you know, reading good old-fashioned dead tree media books right. or watching television. Uh, tell us about that spectrum of, of the different kinds of media and the correlations. Well, the major findings dealt with uh, music and, or uh, the major significant findings dealt with music as well as books. 
And basically what the book finding was, was that people in the top quartile with regard to reading Mm. were actually one-tenth as likely to be depressed as people who were in the bottom quartile with regard to reading. Again, we don't think that it's reading that's making these people immune to uh, depression, that it's, it's actually probably more likely that reading takes some mental energy. It takes the ability to take these symbols on the paper and, and convert them in your mind to ideas and images. There, there are even some studies that show that people who are reading burn more calories than people who are watching television. Hmm. It just sort of gives you this sense that it's more of an active media consumption rather than a passive media consumption. And it's harder to concentrate on when, you know, when you're depressed, when you're feeling anhedonic, uh, feeling sad, not feeling motivated. You had 106 kids participate in the study, Doctor. Average age, almost 13. Mm-hmm. How did you actually conduct the study? What we did was a procedure called ecological momentary assessment is the fancy term for it. Basically, we gave them each a cell phone and followed them over five weekends and called them 60 times at, at uh, random moments and found out what they were doing and and. We think that we're getting a little bit more of an accurate read of who is really doing the most of certain activities as compared with just asking retrospectively, what have you been doing these days? What about the styles of music? Did you get any sense of that? What types of music were these patients listening to? We did not. So this is definitely a limitation of the study and something that I think would be really interesting to look at more in the future. The way we coded this independent variable, you know, how frequently was someone listening to music, it could have been Beethoven and it could have been Lady Gaga. Mm. Now, because these are uh, American youth, it probably wasn't Beethoven, just, you know, (laughs) considering the percentages. Um, But I think that that's definitely a direction for future research to um, parse out a little bit more, well, what kinds of of music that someone is listening to would, would be more associated with you know, their, their mental health, you know, rather than just music as a whole. So if a parent is observing their child listening to a lot of music, should this be a, a little bit of a warning sign that maybe we're, you know, maybe check a little more deeply into signs of depression here? Is, is that what you're suggesting this, this study might lead to, or, or, or what should we take out of this? Yeah, I think that that's a good way of describing it the way you did. I mean, you know, you, it's not something to be rushed into a panic about, because all of these things are just statistically associated. It doesn't mean that every kid who is listening to lots of music, I mean, a lot of kids listening to lots of music, uh, you know, might be uh, budding musicians, and they might be, you know, doing it for completely uh, different reasons. However, I think you, you, you're right to point out that, you know, what we're seeing is that this may be a marker for something, and just being a little bit more aware about it, thinking about it, you know, can help. I think it's especially true when it comes to teenagers and depression, because, you know, it's well known in the psychiatric community that um, teenagers don't necessarily manifest depression, you know, the way it is in the textbook, sadness and, you know, saying I'm feeling depressed. So things like this, but, you know, other behavioral things that are related to the world that they live in, you know, the music they're listening to, other activities they're doing, 
you know, they can be very valuable adjuncts to the traditional kinds of assessments of depression. Doctor, you obviously are you're a professor of, of medicine and pediatrics. Greg Cott and I are rock critics. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to think for a minute like a rock critic. I mean, one of the things that that, that we've had uh, different people, scientists on the show that we've interviewed through the years, it's been so inspiring to us to occasionally talk to healthcare uh, people who are, you know, having results with autistic children or Alzheimer's patients with music that they didn't with any other form of therapy. There is mm-hmm. something magical about music. What do you think it is about music that, that so connects uh, on a level that no other media does? I completely agree, and I'm not an expert in, and I think, those deep philosophical concepts. I think it has something to do with with rhythm. I think it has something to do with the fact that the the emotion that someone can convey, you know, with these particular um, set of techniques that we have, you know, more deeply in terms of how the brain actually, you know, feels that as opposed to something, you know, that's in a movie – I'm not really sure, but I definitely echo what you're saying. And, you know, I'm interested in music and and how it's potentially associated with health conditions, but I'm also interested in all of the potentially positive things, you know, that it can do. And I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about with regard to autism. I really think that music, in you know, for depressed people may be giving them opportunities to to think and, and, and sort of commune with other people um, who are having similar issues. And so, you know, I think that that's one of the big mysteries. And, and I hope that uh, biologists are studying more about that to let us both know um, what some of the deep underlying reasons for this are. We've been talking to Dr. Brian Primack from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Great. Thank you. I'm so happy Cause today Found my friends are in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Look on me Sunday morning Is every day For all I care I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God You're listening to Sound Opinions, and next is our conversation with producer and musician Butch Vig. He worked on the new Foo Fighters release, which we'll review later in the show, and he produced this song, Lithium, and the rest of Nirvana's now classic album, Nevermind. Butch's career has spanned the last three decades, from the indie rock 80s when he was in a band called Spooner, to the 90s alternative era when he worked with Nirvana, Sonic Youth, and the Smashing Pumpkins, and into the post-alternative years when he was a member of the band Garbage. He continues to produce major acts today, so we turned to him in 2008 to get a little more insight into what actually happens in the recording studio. Butch, you had a very humble beginning. You were studying music at the University of Wisconsin, right? I mean, that's kind of where you cut your teeth a little bit on on production and, and being a producer. I mean, did you know even then that that's what you wanted to do for a living? I didn't, but I mean, I, I grew up in a, a musical family. My mom was a music teacher, and uh, I started playing in bands in college. I, I went to film school at the University of Wisconsin and started doing a lot of electronic music scores. By the time I finished college, I had sort of started to immerse myself in the in the Madison scene, and I had met Duke Erickson and Steve Marker, who both ended up playing in Garbage with me. And Steve and I started a studio, and it was 
probably one of the most boneheaded things we could ever do because we had no idea what we were doing, you know, no business sense at all. And, and luckily, we sort of latched onto uh, the local punk scene there and uh, and just sort of took off. I mean, it was a slow build, but um, we seemed to stay busy. And uh, it, it to me, it wasn't a job, even though I, I've worked very hard over the years. I still, like I said earlier, I love going into the studio and I love uh, being involved in music. On the television, a ship was sinking. It seemed so real, but it was just a movie. You were working with a lot of young bands in the 80s, obviously, Butch. Uh, Smart Studios, what, opened about 1984, is that right, in Madison, Wisconsin? Yeah, yep, um, 1984. And I have got a ton of records in my collection, you know, back then when we were buying vinyl still, uh, <laughs> picking up all this, all these indie rock bands that I was into, you know, Killdozer and Dekreutzen and The Fluid and Urge Overkill and Laughing Hyenas, L7, Tad... And I kept saying this guy's name, Butch Vig, Butch Vig, Butch Vig. I mean, he was like, you sort of turned out to be the go-to guy for a lot of those independent bands who didn't have a lot of money to spend, had a cool sound, and just wanted to get into the studio and get some music down. How did that evolve that you, you went from this local guy in Madison who really didn't know what he was doing by your own admission to starting to record all these indie bands from around the country in the 80s? I mean, you're mentioning all those names, and uh, it just brings a smile on my face because those records were fun. There were no rules, you know. They, since they were all in indie labels, I would just get a call from Touch and Go or from Sub Pop, and they say, "We got this band, you know. When can you get him in?" And I'd say, "Well, I've got like you know five or six days, and you know next month or whatever." The budgets were cheap, so we had to make them fast. And but they, they, there was never sort of any commercial constraints or anything. We didn't even do pre-production back then. The, the band would just show up. The van would pull up to Smart. I'd help them load the gear in and make a pot of coffee. And uh, and we'd just okay. What? Well, let me hear the first song. Let's do it. And we, we would do it. And <laughs> and it was cool. I mean, I think one of the reasons that some of the records um I started to get a lot of work was because, you know, I'm a pop geek. I just love pop music and melodies, and, and I wanted things to sound good. I wanted to hear separation, you know, between the guitars and drums and, and vocals and the bass or whatever instrumentation they had. And and so I think even though those records were fast and uh, kind of down and dirty, I think they sort of did have a vibe, and you could hear the hooks when they, when there were hooks. And um, that's I think that's why I got a lot of work, really. And that's why, I mean, it just sort of snowballed. That whole indie scene led to me, you know, working with it. Billy Corgan heard those records, and that's why he called me from the Pumpkins. Corgan comes out there to do that that Pumpkins record, and that uh, I guess that's the real superstar first act that put you on the map. First time you were had a, had a record on the Billboard charts. Yeah, and I mean, I, I loved working with Billy because he was very intense and very driven. But when we made Gish, that was the first album where we actually had time. I was like, oh my god, we have like thirty days to make a record, and and we worked like fourteen or fifteen hours every day for those thirty days just to try and make it sonically 
take it to another level. And uh, I really, really respected his work ethic and just his talent. And, uh, you know, we, we sometimes would butt heads, but more often than not, I think we sort of got a lot of chemistry and sort of were on the same wavelength in terms of what we were trying to do with those records. And I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, of the work I do with the Pumpkins. I think those records still hold up really well. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing opening statement for that band. And I remember talking to Corgan as soon as he got out the recording session. And Corgan was saying, like, one by one, the band was dropping like flies. And the only guy who could stay up all night with me was that guy, was that producer Butch, you know. And it was just like, it sounded like you guys were, like, going these long 36-hour stretches with no sleep and just working obsessively over this record. It almost sounded like you'd gone so far in that you almost didn't know your way out at, at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you say that, because I remember at the, the end of Gish, uh, I, we were trying, we were struggling with the last mix, and you're right, we hadn't slept for like two days or something, and and I remember Billy crawled under the console for like m- maybe an hour and a half to try and get a little shot while I was trying to figure out something in the mix with the guitars or whatever, and, and it was a real bitch of a mix. I can't remember which song it was now, but, and, and at that point, I remember it was like 6 a.m., it was our last day in the studio, and, and you know, Billy and I were exhausted. We sort of looked at each other, and I think we said something like, "You know, when you finish a record, there's, it's not like everyone jumps up in the air and high fives and goes hooray. It sort of is the, the last man standing. Okay, it's time to go home." <laughs> One of the things with the Pumpkins, Butch, is that obviously there it was a very volatile band, four very uh, distinct personalities. You mentioned Corgan and, and Jimmy Chamberlain and the drummer, and Darcy Retsky on bass and James Eha on guitar. Four people who really didn't belong in a band together yet were in this band and and had a chemistry, created a lot of issues in the studio, obviously with Gish and certainly exacerbated when you did Siamese Dream with them in 93, which was their huge breakthrough. But, I mean, you, you're not only a producer, but you had to be some, something of a psychologist and a, and a coach to, to sort of get along with, the, get everybody getting along and getting on the same page. I mean, was that the biggest challenge for you with that band, is just, just sort of keeping the personalities together in the studio? Yeah, it really was. That was the record that I realized a record producer is a psychologist, and that's probably your job actually more than just you know worrying about the music. It, it's it was such a uh, tentative time for the band. I mean, they had high hopes for what they wanted to do, and yet they were just set at uh, the stress level was ready to break. We're going to continue our discussion with record producer Butch Vig after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, we've got reviews of new releases by the Foo Fighters and Paul Simon.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're going to pick up our 2008 conversation with producer Butch Vig. You know, he worked with major acts like Nirvana and Sonic Youth, and then he went on to become a founding member of Garbage. The song you're hearing right now is Today by the Smashing Pumpkins, another act he worked on in 1993 on their breakout album, Siamese Dream. Butch was in the studio at that time with Billy Corgan, James Eha, Darcy Retsky, and Jimmy Chamberlain. And as he explains, it was a notoriously difficult recording session, one that lasted many months and cost a quarter million dollars. It was by far the hardest record I've made. Just, you know, we went straight through for five months in Atlanta, you know, sometimes seven days a week, 14 or 15 hours a day. And then we came out to L.A. and mixed, I think, for 36 straight days with uh, wow. Billy and Alan, Alan Mulder and I. And uh, I remember I, I think I lost like 10 or 15 pounds. And uh, wow. I, for like two weeks when the record was done, I just lay on the couch and vegged out. I couldn't even, I was catatonic, basically. There was something about that band, the, the sort of... Um, the misfits between the four of them, how they connected. I mean, even though Billy played a lot of the guitar and bass, you know, almost everything on Siamese Dream, there was something needed about the whole band together, how they talked about the songs and when they would work out arrangements. And I mean, they were just phenomenal live. I mean, when we made Siamese Dream, we wanted to make something really glorious and ambitious. And uh, it wasn't, um, let's go in the studio and we'll just record Oh Naturel and we'll put that out because that's how we sound. I mean, some of the songs had... 40 or 50 or 60 guitar overdubs on them and you know we, we lost our minds a little bit but I think that the the songwriting and just sonically how the album turned out I think it uh, it was worth the worth the effort Well, it's interesting what you just said too, Butch. That even if uh, if Eha or or Darcy weren't on a track, the fact that they were part of the mix and living with the Pumpkins and living with Corgan and and giving their feedback, I mean, they were still part of the band. Yeah, definitely. And the, you know, they would. We were set up on the studio. And we would run through arrangements and try. You know, when we're getting ready to track a new song, and you know, they would play all the parts. And uh, and sometimes just the discourse between. James and Darcy and Billy, or Jimmy and, and Billy, you know, the, the, you know, they, there was tension, but that tension and, and trying to figure out the arrangement and what they were going to play and, and the tempo and speed and the vibe, you know, is it going to be louder? Are we going to pull back here and be quiet? There, there was group input from that, and I think some of that came from them playing live and being such a phenomenal live band. The truth is, though, that Billy is just an amazing musician, and when it came to getting some of the parts down, we started overdubbing the guitars and bass. He was just great at it. The other issue, too, was Chamberlain was already sort of sinking into uh, drug use, and those kind of issues were becoming a part of the band's psychology as well. How were you able to sort of keep Chamberlain in the studio long enough to record? I mean, were there issues where, like, you know, I heard stories like he was MIA during some of those sessions, and, I mean, that must have been hell to, to go through that. 
It, it was, and, uh, and the funny thing is, one of the reasons we chose Atlanta was we thought we'd go someplace where we didn't know anybody, and we'd be kind of isolated. You know, the studio was kind of north of the city. And within one day, Jimmy knew every drug dealer and hooker and, and <laughs> crazy person in the city. I mean, all of a sudden, this parade of, of lunatics started coming by the <laughs> studio. It got pretty bad. There was one point where he was MIA for a couple of days, or he'd show up to play, and it was clear he couldn't play very well. It just, we, you know, we'd go, well, that's it. We're going home. We're not doing anything today. And, and you know, Billy would get really pissed off at him and, and say, look, you got to get your shit together and come in and play tomorrow. And usually he would, but there was one day where he, he went... Uh, he didn't show up, and we didn't see him for a couple of days, and we started freaking out, going, oh, my God, maybe something happened to him. And he finally showed up like uh, two or three days later, and, and I said, okay, look, I'll play drums in this record, man. And there was no way in hell I could play like him or play any of those parts, but I think we sort of had to put the fear of God into him. That, you know, if, you, if you're going to be part of this band, then you have to put your, your musicianship and your, your playing first. I remember we did, after the MIA, after the three days he was gone, we did Cherub Rock. One of the key tracks on the record. Um, you know, we ran through the song a couple of times, and we went for a take, and I literally think he nailed it on the first take. Mm-hmm. Did another take, it was incredible. And and Billy came in and said, I want to do it like another 20 takes. Mm. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? So I got on the speaker and said, okay, it's not quite there, it's not good enough, we got to do another one. And so we, we sort of tortured him. I know that sounds terrible and sadistic in a way, but to his credit, man... He played 20 takes, blazing on fire, everyone fantastic, and his hands were a bloody pulp when he finished. Oh, and my we God. Got, you know, a couple hours later, I said, okay, boy, you can go home, get some sleep. We're going to come back and rock again tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> and you used the second take. Yeah, we used the second take, <laughs> yeah. Tell us, uh, how, how did the Nirvana record, uh, Nevermind, come to be done uh, with you? Had they heard the Gish recordings and the, and the track on uh, on singles by the Pumpkins, or what? Well, I got a call from Jonathan at Sub Pop, and he called and said, you got to work with this band, Nirvana. They could be the next Beatles. I'm thinking, yeah, right, I've heard that before. And they were on tour doing some shows in the Midwest, and so he we, we figured out there was like a six-day window where they actually were playing a show in Madison, and uh, and we could squeeze them around like three days on either side of that show and, and do some recording. And it was ostensibly for a sub-pop album. And so lo and behold, like a couple weeks later, they just showed up in this in, in the sub-pop van that all the bands took out. And it's like I helped them load in the amps and stuff, and we started setting up. And uh, I, I sensed right away that Kurt was uh, unique and special in, in that he was very charming, very engaging, and super witty, and then something would snap, and he would just go sit in the corner and not say anything. You know, and this is, I, he'd been in the studio for a couple hours, and I'm like, Kurt, is everything okay? Are you hungry, or, you know, you want to lay down, you don't feel good? And he wouldn't even say anything to me, and finally Chris came up and said, look, Kurt just gets in these moods, you know, it'll just pass, don't worry about it, we'll just keep working on the bass sound or something, and and that's, I mean, as I said, he'd only been in the studio a couple hours, and I realized that he had these incredibly 
potent mood swings mm. and uh, and very difficult to deal with, you know. And and he, I just knew from the get go that he was special. I mean, the songs they played that first day were, you know, they played in bloom and um, I can't remember all the other songs we did for those sessions, but they, they were incredible. Before they came in the studio, uh, Jonathan had sent me Bleach, and I was, you know, I liked the record. I was not a, a super fan of all the songs on there, but the song I, I gloriously fell in love with and played over and over again was about a girl, because to me that had sort of a Beatles mm-hmm. melody and chord structure. realized that he had songs that he wanted to, to start to open up with. And he'd be sitting in the corner playing guitar. These are some of the songs that end up being on Nevermind. And I'd hear him just sort of quietly singing this melody over the chords and go, wow, that's fantastic. What is it? And he goes, no, that's just something I'm working on. I don't know if I like it or not. And, you know, and it turned out to be a teen spirit or come as you are or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he always kind of struggled with that pop sensibility because I think he thought it was easier to sort of put on more of a punk attitude and play something more primal but it was he was blessed with that kind of melodic gift and that's something I discovered from those early uh, smart sessions Giffen eventually made a deal to uh, put out Nevermind with uh, Sub Pop on a major label. And uh, I remember talking to the reps at the label before the record came out because they go, man, this, this thing is fantastic. And they said, well, I think we're going to sell 50,000. I think it's really going to be big. You know, it's going to be a big, small record. Uh, they had no idea that it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, did you have a sense when you were recording it that uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was going to be like this era-making song? I mean, did you feel like it was at that level at that point? No way. I mean, I, I knew the song was great. It was it was clearly sort of the, the standout track on the record, um, the one that I kept sort of gravitating to. You know, as soon as we got the rough mix done after Kurt had finished the vocals, I made a cassette, which I still have somewhere. It's just off the Neve board with no EQ, no reverb or compression, so it's just dry and like just everything sort of straining to come through the board, and it, it sounds incredible. And I just played it nonstop in my car when I was going back to the studio, and, and a few people who I knew in L.A. at that time, you know, I'd start playing it for them. they go, holy sh**, play that for me again. And they're starting to get this little buzz around some of the people who knew I was in there. They, they would start asking me, you know, how's the Nirvana record? And then I get a call before I go in the studio. You know, I heard you work on Nirvana. What's it like? Can I hear something? And I'd never really experienced that before, that there was this sort of tangible buzz about the band. And... uh it was just such a, a heady moment, a heady time for me, and then just see, to see their record explode like that was, uh, and I was absolutely thrilled to be a part of it. 
How much uh, studio as an instrument approach did you use on Nevermind? Because my sense is, Butch, it wasn't a completely, you know, in-the-moment type of record. Like, here's the band live, I'm going to set up some microphones. There was some construction going on, right? There were drum loops and things like that. Was that actually used on that record? Yeah, I, I didn't use drum loops, but I did some drum editing. Um, Dave was a great drummer, though. We I think we only used a click track on, like, two songs on, on Nevermind. But I knew that Kurt had no patience, so I would usually go in the studio at noon or 1 and tell him to come by at, like, 3 or 4 so I could get the things set up for whatever we were doing that day. And then they would play, and I wouldn't have them do a lot of takes. You know, if it was kind of a basic track, I'd maybe get two or three or four takes, and usually they'd get it on, like, the second or third take. And then I would go back and and try to get uh, both Chris and Kurt to, to overdub to get the parts tightened up that I thought were looser. If I didn't if I didn't like the sound, I'd go back and change it. Chris was cool. That was very hard with Kurt. He thought it was cheating, you know, to go back and to work on something again. And, and it's sort of from, coming from that punk purist uh, mm-hmm. attitude. And so I, I would say, well, John Lennon would double track his vocals or John Lennon would double track his guitar or whatever. Anytime I used Lennon as a reference, it worked. I, I could, mm. He'd go, okay, he'd go, okay, Butch, I'll go do it. And ultimately the record is really guitar-based drums. There are overdubs on it, but it still sounds like a... You know, a three-piece band. We we tried to in the arrangements and stuff. We didn't put on a lot of extra bits and things that they couldn't necessarily do live. And and I worked really hard on pushing Kurt to get the vocals well thought out melodically. What he was doing. Some of the songs, you know, he'd he'd sing me alternate melodies like on Teen Spirit. He had two or three different approaches to it. And you know, of course, the one that I liked the best was the one that moves around a lot the way. It's very sing-songy. also send him home as soon as we get something that I had time to sort of go through and tweak things and clean him up and you know get him so they just sound a little bit more focused and a little bit tighter but at the end of the day as I said I tried to make it sound like a three-piece rock band I'm only happy when it You were becoming such a heavyweight producer at this point. You were doing The Pumpkins. You were doing Nirvana. Sonic Youth came and did a couple of records with you. What made you want to jump back in and do a band like Garbage? I mean, and, and again, you know, being the producer, being the, the artist, being on the other side of the, of the window screen, what made you want to do that? Obviously, you could have had a very comfortable life as a producer at that point. Yeah, you know, I was somewhat stupid in a way to want to get back into do, being in a band. Uh, we sort of fell into it, really, because I started doing remixes for like U2 and Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and House of Pain. And that, to me, was liberating because it was sort of breaking out of just recording bands. I fell in love with Public Enemy and what they were doing with samplers in the studio, and so I bought a, a, an Akai S1000 sampler and started using that in, in the record-making process. And and when I started doing remixes, it was stripping the tracks down, sort of recording all new bits and pieces, and then putting the vocals in on top of it. And, and uh, Duke and Steve started playing with me, and we kind of, you know, because I'd been in bands with them before, we kind of thought, oh, this is cool. Maybe we should sort of put some tracks together with, uh, see if we can get someone to sing on them, and, uh, and we'll put it out. It might be 
kind of cool and kind of fun. No intention of touring or uh, no intention of doing it full time. And then we met Shirley and we we made uh, the first garbage record. And then all of a sudden the radio started playing Vow and, and Geffen called and Elmo called and our, our label and said, you got to go on tour and do some dates. And then we thought, oh, okay, well maybe this will be fun to go out for like six weeks and do it. And then the snowball effect took over, and I got sucked into the garbage zone. <laughs> and, four, uh, four albums later, it, right? Yeah, four, ten years and four albums later. And, uh, I mean, it, it was really cool in a way to sort of have that kind of success as a musician and being in a band because, you know, I'd been in bands before that, um, you know, we were successful on a very small, in small terms, you know, in, in Madison or the local scene. But it was great to sort of feel like we were sort of at least for me and what we're, my bandmates are doing, we're sort of pushing each other, pushing the envelope in terms of what we thought you could do in terms of what can you do in the studio and, you know, how can you put pop melodies with buzzy guitars and use hip-hop loops and whatever. And so it was somewhat of an experiment we started. And um, and then Shirley just grew into a incredible front person and, you know, really grew into her own as an artist. And, and the band, you know, she became the focal point of the band and, and kind of we just, you know, all of a sudden we're playing in Wembley Stadium and all this <laughs> stuff. And it's like... How the hell did that happen? It was a hell of a ride, you know, and it's, uh, I'm glad right now that we're on hiatus because uh, I think we kind of hit that wall where we were just in each other's face for too long, and uh, it's been good for me to get back in the studio. You know, I did the Against Me album and worked with Jimmy Eat World, and I'm just finishing up the Subways record, and I'm actually working with Shirley, uh, helping her write some songs. She's been working on a solo record, and uh, so it's, I mean, I still see her, and I, and I talk to my bandmates uh Fairly regularly, but um, no plans to tour anytime in the near future. But who knows? You know, never say never. That was Butch Vig talking to us in 2008. To make a comment about this conversation or anything in the rock universe, call 888-859-1800 or email interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up, we'll review Butch Vig's latest production effort by the Foo Fighters, as well as the new release by singer-songwriter Paul Simon. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song by the Foo Fighters from their seventh album. The tune is called I Should Have Known. And it marks a return of Dave Grohl, leader of the Foo Fighters and formerly the drummer of Nirvana, to playing with the bassist in Nirvana, Chris Novoselic, and working with the man who produced Nevermind, Nirvana's breakthrough album, Butch Vig. Now, Dave Grohl is second, in my opinion, only to Phil Collins as the most successful drummer in rock history to come out from behind the drum set and start singing and writing songs and leading a band of his own. At first, the big news post the wreckage of Nirvana after the death of Kurt Cobain was that Grohl had any talents besides being one heck of a drummer. Who knew the guy could write songs? You know, we knew he could sing because he provided a lot of those great backing vocals to Nirvana Mm -hmm. with Kurt Cobain, but we didn't know he could write songs. And then the band kept going and going and going and going around for a very long time with a minimum number of musical ideas. Pat Smear, who had been an influential member of the Germs, the L.A. punk band from the 80s, came and went through the Foo Fighters. It seemed as if they were losing their way. It's been quite some time since we got new Foo Fighters music. Roll played with them Crooked Vultures, the super group with John Paul Jones and Josh Homme. Uh, he played before that with Queens of the Stone Age. He was doing other things. It was doubtful for a while whether we were ever going to see another Foo Fighters record. Now we have one. It's called Wasting Light, the seventh album in the Foo Fighters catalog. Let's hear a song. It's called Dear Rosemary by the Foo Fighters on Sound Opinions. Rosemary from the Foo Fighters Wasting Light album, the seventh studio album from that Dave Grohl fronted band. Butch Vig as the producer, Alan Mulder as the mixer on this record. Some high powered help for Dave Grohl here, Jim. Vig is an expert 
at trimming all the fat off of pop songs and putting them into their absolute radio-perfect mold. And uh, he does that for Grohl here. He's mixed tons of amazing records over the last couple of decades. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Nine Inch Nails. So this thing is going to sound perfect when you put it on the headphones or listen to it on radio. And that's exactly what Grohl is aiming for here. Here's a guy who's made seven studio albums, as you said, hinted at that earlier, a minimum of songwriting talent, (laughs) let's put it this way. One of the great drummers of our generation. I love what he has done as a drummer in the past decade for Queens of the Stone Age, for Probot, that little heavy metal side project that he did with Wino and Lemmy and some of his heroes, and them Crooked Vultures. On his own, not so much. At times, I think of this guy as a journeyman, maybe just a notch or two above that guy from Nickelback. I mean, he writes formula songs. We've got the power ballad, I Should Have Known. We've got the hardcore punk screed, White Limo. And we've got a bunch of brisk, up-tempo rock songs tweaked to perfection for radio airplay by Butch Vig and Alan Mulder, who who are doing their jobs. But I don't hear any surprises on this record. You know, you can trim the fat, but you can't trim the cliches. No. Dave Grohl's a man who doesn't have a whole lot to say. I think the the big theme on this record, Wasting Light, hey, we're wasting light. Time's a-wasting. You know, live your life to the fullest. Okay, I get it, Dave. Maybe you're not the guy that should be expressing that in its fullest, most poetic fashion. I find it hard <laughs> to buy this guy yeah. as a great songwriter. You know, I have to say, would I put on a Foo Fighters record ever again voluntarily just for the sheer pleasure of it? I have to be honest with myself and say, no, I'm going to have to give this a trash it rating. I agree, Greg. It, it is a trash it record. And uh, I'll be even a little harsher. I mean, you're saying he's a journeyman, you know, he's trying. He's cashing in is what he's doing. Mm. I have seen so many of those multi-band modern rock radio festival bills where out come the Foo Fighters. This guy is shucking and jiving. He's playing. <laughs> he's as bad as like the guys in Poison when they play the state fair these days. Oh, jeez. When he is behind the drums in any of those projects you mentioned or in any other setting I can imagine, he is indeed a rock star. Why he also feels the need to put himself in the front of a band. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and the formula is just like, first chorus, first chorus, first chorus. Yeah. That is every Foo Fighters song. Big chorus, mm-hmm. right? But it's still a lame chorus. Dave, come on, stop singing, hang it up, play the drums, a double trash it. After I died and the makeup had dried, I went back to my place. No moon that night, but a heavenly light shone on my face. Still I thought it was odd, there was no sign of God just to usher me in. Then a voice from above, sugar-coated with love, said, let us begin. Paul Simon with a new song from his latest album, So Beautiful or So What. The song is called The Afterlife, kind of a hint at some of the larger themes going on here. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but... uh, Everybody knows who Paul Simon is, right? Simon and Garfunkel, half of one of the greatest folk pop duos of the 60s. Simon was the songwriter in that in that combination. Artie was the voice. And uh, went on to a solo career where he would release albums every few years, each one of them justly lauded in its day. He would win multiple Grammy Awards, inevitably sell millions of records. And this continued right up through the 80s. Graceland, that landmark album, where he traveled to South Africa to record with a number of musicians there, ended up redefining the world music genre. And since then... The successes have come fewer and farther between. The nadir of his career occurred in 1997 when he decided to take his music to Broadway with The Cape Man, one of the most notorious flops in Broadway history. And it's uh, been a slow climb back for Simon ever since. 
He recorded with your hero, Jim, Brian Eno, in 2006 with an album called Surprise, tried to tinker with the formula a bit. And now he's back with yet another album five years later called So Beautiful or So What. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a song from it first. It's called Getting Ready for Christmas Day from Paul Simon on Sound Opinions. From early in November to the last week of December, I got money matters weighing me down. Well, the music may be merry, but it's only temporary. I know Santa Claus is coming to town. In the days I work my day job, in the nights I work my night, but it all comes down to working Getting Ready for Christmas Day by Paul Simon from his new album, So Beautiful or So What, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, the title alone says that Simon's got a little bit of his sense of humor back. So beautiful or so what? I'm glad to hear Simon being a little goofy because, frankly, I think the problem since that one-two punch of Graceland in in 1986 and the Rhythm of the Saints, which did for uh, South American and Brazilian music really what Graceland did, not since 1990 has Paul been relaxing a little bit. The guy is so uptight. He's the definition of it. You know, you see him on stage these days, it just looks like he's going to explode. With that record with Eno, it was like so laid back. It was a real welcome change of pace. But it was hardly, like, uplifting and inspiring. Now, he's not breaking any new musical ground. We got a little bit of uh, bluegrass on here. We have backing vocals from his wife, Edie Brickell. We have some familiar-sounding world rhythms, you know. It's nothing new. But Paul's laughing. He's giving us some tunes. He's in fine form vocally. Wow, I was really surprised. I just thought another piece of Paul Simon product, but I'm having a lot of fun listening to this record on the buy-it, burn-it, trash-it scale. I'd actually give it a buy-it. 
You know, I'd have to agree with you, Jim. I'm, I'm charmed by this record, actually, and I didn't think I would be. I don't think uh, Paul Simon is necessarily charming. That's not the first word that comes to mind. No right. diss on him, but that's not his strength. But as you said, there's a sort of a conversational wryness about this album that is very appealing to listen to. At the same time, he's wrestling with some of these big existential questions about what's our place in the world. And he says, you know, we're just ants trolling through time, and God's <laughs> up there making these decisions, and we're not really sure why. But he's approaching it in a very kind of populist way. He's laughing at himself, and he's laughing at God and with God at times. The music is gentle, undulating, percolating, it's subtle, but there's a groove to it. There's some movement in this music. He's still working with uh, Vincent Naguni, the great Cameroonian guitar player who adds a lot to this record. The rhythms are constantly shifting. He's ornamenting them with these exotic percussion instruments, Asian tube instruments. There's a djembe, which is an African drum, and I hear that all over this record in a sort of a panorama of little moments and surprises throughout these songs. I find myself listening to it for the subtleties. I find myself coming back to it for the humor. Paul Simon's best record in a very long time. It's a buy it record for me, too. So a double buy it for Paul Simon's latest. What is on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from one of our favorite bands, the Drive-By Truckers. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. If the Sound Opinions team were lesser-known albums produced by Butch Vig, our intern Nick Myers would be Killdozer. Our producer Robin Lynn would be L7. Our other producer Jason Saldana would be Helmet. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he's Tad. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Bus, bus, line is busy every time that I phone. Bus is the longest talker I ever known. Bus, bus, I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Bus, when I get him, I forget what to say. Should I call the operator? Is the number that he gave me my own? Bus, bus, I've decided that this romance is true. Can it be true that it is ringing? I can believe it. Wait till I say hello. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Sally Grayson calling from Winzerhausen, Germany. Just listened to the South by Southwest show and loved it. I just want to say thanks to you guys for introducing me to some pretty amazing bands. I also wanted to say just thanks for not only just great bands, but some great female um, musicians, and that it wasn't like classified as some women's artists music show or women's monthly celebrating women whatever show <laughs> but just that it's great music and yeah as a musician myself i appreciate being equally represented yeah great show love it bye hi guys my name is Erin. i'm from chicago illinois i just was calling because i cannot believe that you guys have not discussed mumford and son's album sigh no more it's one of the best things I have heard in a very, very long time. The music is innovative, but it's old at the same time. It's amazing, and I really, really, really want to hear you guys review um, their CD and would really appreciate it. Thanks. I will hold on hope, and I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck, and I'll find strength in pain, and I will change my ways, I'll know my name as it's cold again. 
Hi, this is Rick from New York. I am calling to respectfully disagree with your review of Britney Spears' Femme Fatale. I happen to think it's a great dance record, very creative, modern take on new wave, kraut rock, 80s pop, worthy of being taken seriously. Just a few weeks ago, you paid tribute to the Monkees, and that was a, de- a band derided in its time as inauthentic, just a front for producers and songwriters, but one that now is getting perhaps some belated respect. But it seems that you're giving this Britney Spears record the same short shrift as critics gave the Monkees in the 60s. So maybe we could think of Britney's producers, Dr. Luke, Max Martin, Bloodshine, Avant, they're the modern equivalent of what Don Kirshner, Boyce and Hart, and the Brill Building folks uh, were doing behind those great Monkees hits. We can just enjoy the music for what it is. Thanks for a great show, as always. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stephen. I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. I would like to thank the taxi driver who introduced me to the Sound Opinions podcast. When I got into the cab, I could hear Jim and Greg debating hip-hop and its origins. The taxi driver was only too happy to tell me that he'd been listening to this podcast for years. So I looked it up, and since then I've been devouring the archive of various podcasts and debates and reviews over the last few weeks, and it's been great to discover this program. I especially loved listening to the debate around Tom Waits and Captain Beefheart and some of the things that the two of you get passionate about. So, thanks to you both, and thanks to Random Taxi Driver. Um, I hope you hear this. I'm sure you'll play it in your cab, and I really appreciate how you've enriched my music life. Thanks. There was not much more for us to talk about Whatever we had once was gone So I turned my cab into the driveway Past the gate and the fine trim logs No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.